Another episode of No Challenges Remaining. I am Ben Rothenberg, and joining me for the first time in a few weeks is Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Long time no podcast. I know. It's a bit brutal. It's a bit brutal when you're on the other side of the world. It's very hard. So we sort of messed up a little bit, or I messed up not getting one out before the tournament. There's then- another lost episode. We have more lost episodes in there. Someday our DVD box set will be just full of goodies for you people, for the diehard fans. And we'll give, I guess you can't really do audio commentary on a podcast. That wouldn't work. <laughs> do video commentary. That would be good. That would be Make facial actually. expressions to go along with the, with the words. So that's an idea for the future. But yeah, since we since we last spoke, uh, a whole a whole slam happened. A whole entire two week slam. How about that? How about how how about that slam, Ben? So what are you, what are your first, how do you think the 2013 Australian Open will be remembered, Courtney? Um, will it be remembered? It'll be remembered for things that like you don't want people to remember it for. Yeah. So it you know, I don't think that the tennis was particularly great. I think that it's not going to be a slam that we remember we'll remember one specific match for the tennis that'll be Wawrinka Djokovic, I think. Um, mm-hmm. But otherwise, like, I can barely remember the final at this point, even at the time, which I, I really enjoyed, actually, the Federer-Murray five-setter oh, the semis, but I don't, I mean, I, I kind of shrug at it now. Yeah, and then and then for the women, it was just, it was more for the off-court drama, or, I mean, on-court drama, I suppose, but not the actual tennis. On-court drama being taken off-court for 10 minutes, maybe. There you go. That yeah. You can, you can uh, understand my confusion as to how to explain that. But yeah, so I, I just don't, I don't know. It's it's just, it's not going to be a very memorable slam. And I don't think that it's going to be one that is necessarily held with or seen with much like love. Like, you know, like, oh, remember, you know, Wimbledon 08 or remember this or remember, yeah. you know, like, it's just going to be like, oh, yeah. And then it's just going to be one of those slams. Just like, oh, yeah, the Aussie Open 2013. Sort of a going through the motion slam, I guess. Because right, nothing changed. And that's, that's what it feels like, I guess, when you have defending champions both winning. Which is the first time that it happened in a slam in a while, I think. Mm-hmm. And, or at least at the Australian Open in a while. And maybe it probably happened with, like, I don't know. And maybe it hasn't happened. I can maybe, like, Hennon and Nadal did it at the French at some point. Right. right. But uh, then those were also unremarkable events when they happened. Right. So, so yeah. So this you know tournament. What? It, now that you mention it, it's not unlike generally how I feel about the French Open. Yeah. Right. I mean, not on the women's side different, but like for the guys with Rafa kind of winning all the time, obviously it's a tremendous feat and it's kind of, it's fun watching him do it. But at the end he wins and you're kind of like, well, okay. So what was that two weeks for really? And, you know, in terms of like propelling any narrative forward or anything. So, and I think you got that on the men's side once again, by having the top four seeds make the semis, Mm -hmm. you're like, okay, so what was the point of the last 12 days? Right. Yeah. So like, why do it, I get why do I get worked up over the first week? You know, aside and apart from just being a tennis fan who enjoys watching individual tennis matches and right. you know things like that. But but aside from that, yeah, on the men's side, like what's the point? <laughs> yeah. No. Pretty pretty much. So everything pretty much held to form. I guess Murray over Federer was upset by the numbers, but not really. I don't think anybody was shocked by it to right. say the least. I think people expected Murray to win that match largely, and he did. Mm-hmm. So I was that, pretty surprised by how well he played. 
Yeah, it was actually one of the least competitive five setters I've ever seen, I think. Right. In terms of one that was, you know, like they alternated sets. Yeah. I think that Murray just seemed in control the entire time and Federer sort of stole two sets. People got really mad at me when I referred to it on Twitter as a beatdown. Yeah, it like, was. Extremely angry. Federer fans were pissed. People get angry on Twitter sometimes, they Courtney. They do. They do. Don't they know we have feelings? <laughs> no, we're just nameless, faceless <laughs> Twitter accounts. Pretty much. Pretty much. Well, I have a face on mine. You don't have one on yours. This is true. This so is true. maybe that's why they're meaner to you. It's probably true. They don't have yeah. they don't have a smug a smug redhead staring back at them, <laughs> making them double. Is my picture that smug? Am I smug? <laughs> it's pretty maybe. smug, dude. Knowing you, yeah. that's like the smuggiest face I've ever seen. <laughs> well, that's a backhanded compliment, I guess, because normally I'm not very smug then. No, you're not. So that's good. No. I wouldn't I wouldn't describe you as smug. But that photo is actually have... just like a headshot I sent in for a tournament credential once. Solid. And I was, I was like asked like a friend to take a photo of my head and to send in. And that's forever in Twitter now. Right, so, right. There you go. There you go. Great photo. Your photo actually, well, you have two accounts. So describe what your photos are now. I guess particularly your 40 deuce one because I don't know if people would be able to figure <laughs> it out because it's kind of small. It is, it is rather small. It, it's, it kind of just became the 40 deuce logo but it's basically a picture that i took on my i guess i had an iphone at the time um of me lying on the couch well obviously you can't see me but under the blanket it's an oakland a's blanket and under the blanket i am but uh my dog is splayed out on his back so basically it's it's a kind of porny shot of my dog <laughs> <laughs> with with um with my site 40 deuce up on my laptop and if you there look you very closely it's andy murray Oh, very cool. There's it's all sorts of hidden stuff in there's there. A lot, there's a lot of Easter, little little Easter eggs in that picture. Giving away all the good stuff before the DVD set, I, I swear. I know. There goes my pop-up video idea. <laughs> wah, wah. <laughs> okay, so let's get to, I guess, the main story of the tournament, which we, or the main controversy of the tournament which we alluded to, which has been sort of referred to... I hope sarcastically as Vika Gate. <laughs> we can call it Vika Palooza. Vika people Palooza. are so annoyed with the Gate thing, which I am as well. I'm I think it's, I think I think that's sort of a dead Suffolk at this point. <laughs> yeah. The Vika extravaganza. Yeah. The, yeah. So let's uh, let's talk about that. Corny, can you just sort of describe, set the scene for what happened, and I guess why people got upset? Sure. You know, in in kind of a nutshell, what was it? Five three. Uh, Azarenka was serving in the second set in her semifinal match against Sloane Stevens. Yeah. Um, match she totally was controlling. Yes, which she was totally in control. And let's put that out there that it's pretty clear that Vika was going to win this match. And she, oh yeah, I mean she thoroughly outplayed Sloane. And you know I, I think that that Sloane looked heavy legged and and uh, Azarenka was great. So yeah, five three in the serving for the match, she blew five match points. Yep, um, all with unforced and, errors. Yes, she uh, were they all. They all were. That was okay. a point trail thing I found out. Okay. Oh, I missed point trail. It was pretty great. <laughs> Anyways. Um, but yeah, so she blew five set points. And to say that, I mean, she blew them. I mean, I've I've defended people who have been described as blowing match points before um, in the past where I'm like, well, no, the other person played really well. No, Azarenka just choked uh, on these five. Anyways, changeover comes and she takes a 10 minute medical timeout is off the court um for about 10 minutes it was two back-to-back medical timeouts i believe right ben uh yes so there's a little bit of confusion over exactly, that that's basically why to... she the trainer came out and you know sort of poked at her for a while and they walked off court together and then 
Sloan was informed by the chair empire, I forget which chair empire, that Vika was receiving two medical timeouts back to back. And that's why she'd been gone so long. Okay. Uh, Vika, said, Vika later said yeah. that she only got one, but the tournament said she got two and everyone we talked to said she got two right. and Vika made it sound like she declined like the one for her knee or something, but I'm not sure that happened exactly. So that's, that was the only real sort of where the stories didn't line up at all. Part of the story. Uh, so yeah, so they were, they were off court for about seven minutes Yeah. So after about spending two minutes on court getting poked at. Right. So Azarenka comes back, Sloan, gets broken for the match, and, uh, yeah, afterwards, uh, Vika's interviewed uh, immediately on court by Sam Smith during the the kind of celebratory post-match interview thing, mm-hmm. and says that she misunderstood the question because Sam Smith asked her, it was kind of, it was a compound question. Uh, it was a compound question. It actually wasn't a compound question, it was two questions uh, in one question. So the question was, you know, uh, you know, why did you have to leave the court? How are you? Why feeling? did you go off? Is what she said. Why did you go off court? And how are you feeling? Um, and uh, Azarenka just said she was choking and and uh, did, basically didn't mention any of the in- injuries um, or what was going on with her. So, and then she was interviewed again by Tom Rinaldi. Um, she said she was uh, for ESPN. She said that she was having trouble breathing. Um, Felt like she was going to have a heart attack. Right. She joked that she thought she was having a heart attack. And then in her post-match press conference, about 45 minutes to an hour later, she kind of described what was going on, which is that she had a locked rib and should have taken the timeout earlier, said that it was her fault for not taking it earlier, and said, but said that she couldn't breathe and she felt better once the rib was unlocked. Yeah. And in the 45 minutes in between the on-court and on-court-ish interviews, there had been a lot of uproar already about by Patrick McEnroe on Twitter and all the ESPN commentators and various other tweeters and tennis players and tennis players' wives <laughs> weighing in and all sorts of people, you know, gave their two cents on this saying that they thought it was um, lame, I guess to put it right. mildly, that she had, you know, said she was choking and that's why she went off. And, court. It, and I do think I do think the phrase that Sam Smith used, which I only really saw, I really only sort of got at a, on like third or fourth viewing of this thing was that she said, why did you go off there? So I don't know if Vika thought she meant like off the rails and completely right. did get that it was about leaving court. Right. But at the same time, I mean, you kind of have to assume that's what the question was right. about. And it was at least an honest answer to a different question, which was still revealing. Right. So. Yeah. So and obviously the confusion, there was lots of confusion at the time. At the end of the day, you know, it, uh, for most of the people that I've talked to, like that are within tennis, whether they be other players or other coaches, um, commentators, um, writers, a few other people that I spoke to afterwards, uh, kind of the overwhelming consensus is that this was problematic. That yes. there was, you know, whether it be whether that blame is placed directly on the shoulders of Azarenka or the the blame is placed on the rule. The bottom line is that people are are. It was it was a it was a bad mark. It was a bad mark on on kind of the match, obviously on tennis. It obviously on Azarenka as well. We saw that in the the following um, uh, match in the final with the the crowd just kind of being quite anti Vika. Although I thought they would be way worse. I thought I thought they it would be actually, worse too. Actually, yeah, I thought that they were actually okay. Um, there was know. somebody holding up a sign that said like Cheaterenka right. or something. Right. And. You know, the crowd, that's one thing that people should probably know already, is that I've never once been in a, a Azarenka match. I've been to a lot of Azarenka matches at this point. I've never once been to one where the crowd was even remotely on her side. Yep. She's just never been someone who fans seem to have connected with as a 
you know, whole. Right. No, I, so. I think we've, and I think that we've mentioned that before in our, yeah. you know, previous episodes where we talk about Azarenka. She has a really difficult time connecting with fans and whether that's the shriek, whether that's her demeanor, whether, whatever it I think is. It, I think it's mostly, I think it really is mostly the shriek, honestly. The noise. Could be. I think that just is immediately off-putting for people and they don't see past it. Yeah, it's, it's entirely possible because it's not like I see people like going absolutely nuts for Sharapova either. You yeah. know, like she gets fans. Obviously, Maria Sharapova has fans because people like her. Te- I presume people like her tennis or her stature or just she's a big star, all these sorts of things. But people don't kind of react. Fans don't seem to react to her in kind of the rapturous way that. that right. It's definitely like a respect thing for Sharapova. Yeah. People respect Sharapova. Yeah, so I, I mean, I don't know. I've not interviewed uh, fans uh, before about it, but uh, yeah, whether it's the shriek or not. But she has difficulty connecting, and you know, and and obviously she's had kind of, and she admits it as well. You know, problems with the press in the past, and you know, I think that all those sorts of things combined really set up a kind of, well, however you want, an imperfect storm or a perfect storm, a situation where she wasn't given the benefit of the doubt. No. And it was, you know, I wasn't there in Melbourne, so I don't know what the mood of the of the room was. But it was it easier for commentators or other people to kind of pile on her, given kind of her track record. Possibly, I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, we're, everybody's human, you know. Yeah. Like I, I wouldn't dismiss that. But I think the critiques on the whole were pretty fair. That's true, and I think one of the main critiques from people, some backlash media got on Twitter anyway, which I think was the a sort of magnified part of it. I don't know how much of the reaction was mostly this. It was that the media was overreacting or was somehow being too harsh to her. And I kind of, and also one of the other aspects that people thought they were being especially harsh because she had done this against an American in Sloan Stevens. So the Americans were the ones piling on. And there were, obviously on ESPN, those were some of the strongest reactions from Patrick McEnroe, people like that. But for the most part in the press room, it was pretty much unanimous that people thought that Azarenka had, you know, been wrong. This was not a exclusively American sentiment whatsoever. The British people, the Germans, the French people near me all were, at best, rolling their eyes at this yeah. whole thing. I mean, I, I think I watched the um, kind of clips of her her post-match press conference off of the Australian Open site, mm-hmm. and all of the questions that they had clipped together, and maybe it was just because it was Australia, but they were, like, harsh, pretty tough, harsh questions, were from Australians. Like, I was kind of... Yeah expecting to hear like familiar American voices or something like that on the, on the video. And they were all just like really thick, like Australian accents. So at that point it was kind of when I was like, Oh, I don't think that this is really an American thing. And did the Aussie press like take her, like rake her over the coals? I think they absolutely did. I think that's part of that is just the nature of the Aussie press. I mean, like if you have ever, if you ever keep up with kind of the Australian media, like over the course of the year, like they're very sensationalistic with their headlines yes, and the way that they write in terms of op-ed pieces and commentary pieces are, are scathing um, in a way that we don't really do that in the States because I saw a lot of the, those sorts of tweets like, Oh, the American press is like going nuts on this and they're just blasting Azarenka. And from what I was reading, it really didn't seem that way. No, like not you know, there was reporting. Everybody was obviously reporting it because it was a story. But in terms of opinions and things like that, I really, I mean, I think that I would assume, and I could be wrong, but I would assume that, that those sorts of uh, critiques were kind of more uh, focused on ESPN, who did go all in on this immediately. They did, but um, so did everybody. Yeah, everybody did. Thing. Everybody yeah, did. So, and, and you can, people said, oh, the atmosphere in her 
and her press conference was too, you know, interrogational or whatever. But, mm-hmm. I mean, she was changing her story completely. And people were point. trying to report. Yeah, you like have to, any... you just wanted, you wanted a clear answer. I, the question, I only asked like one or two questions, I think, in the press. But it was just sort of like clarifying that what she was saying now was completely different than what she said before. And that's just, you know, smoothing out an inconsistency because you have to write about it. Right. And And get it as accurate as possible. Get the story, you know, straight. It's what journalism is supposed to largely be about. Right. And it's it's still confusing. Mm -hmm. Like, as we were, you know, as we were trying to describe the situation before, there are still, you know, lines that don't match up. And it was kind of funny because I was, as I was reading the press conference, I was like, is it, I mean, really, isn't this how all the press conferences should read <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like in terms of not giving players free passes and not kind of having them be so chummy chummy, which obviously the tennis press is, I mean, yeah. on, the, on a whole, it's a small world. It's I mean, very small that's the world. thing you have to see these, you know, people are <laughs> friendlier or not as harsh as they might be otherwise, because for better or for worse and probably for worse, I guess, um, you know, they have to see these players often week in, week out. Right. So you don't want to go in there and be a complete dick to them. Right. I mean, and, on the, you know, yeah, on the want whole. something from them later, quote unquote. Right, uh, exactly. Yeah, so on the whole, I, 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 one of some of the tweets I got were like some you know political reporters in Australia or something. It was like, wow, I wish that you know our political press was as you know <laughs> fearless as this tennis press. It was like, okay, thanks, but yeah, so yeah, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, it was an odd day and sort of a interesting sort of last moment and would have been an odds women women's tournament to begin with, right? But Ben, um, like, what do you what What's your take? Because we haven't talked about much of this at all. Um, okay. What's your take on kind of the critiques of the rule? Should the rule be changed? Can the rule be changed? Is is I guess more. That's the better question. I, yeah, that's can how it be I, changed? I don't think that it can personally, but I, I'm no. interested to hear what your thoughts are. I don't think it can be changed either, and just because what happened is she said she was she told the you know called asked for the trainer, she was in discomfort, and the trainer tried to treat that as best as possible. And, you know, I don't think we have any reason to doubt that there was, you know, some rib issue or anything. And the trainer just can't be rejecting people's asks for help. Can't do it. You can't do it for, for liability reasons, right. first of all, more than anything. Right. Second of all, it's just not how the system needs to work. And it needs to be in a somewhat as fast as possible, you know, process. Right. But at the same so. time, you as a trainer, you are not going to send a player out there until the treatment is done. Right. Right. I mean, I think... and. You know, and again, it wasn't like Azarenka sat down in the middle of, like, like this was a changeover. Yeah. It's not like she, like, interrupt, like, she, she came out and served and then sat down as Sloan was going to immediately serve. It was out of changeover. People were saying, oh, you know, that's why I, one of the critiques people made was like, oh, you know, she should wait. She should, she shouldn't be able to take that. MTL before Sloan serves. Before Sloan serves. Yeah, and I'm I've like, always had a problem that's with that critique. Just how it is. It's always going to be before Sloan serves, depending on how the set, who serves first. Now, if like, they wanted to radically change the rule to say that you had to do it before your own serve, and do, and you could also do it at non-changeover points at that time, mm-hmm. okay. But I really don't think that before someone else's serve is that big a deal. Part I really don't. I never really understood that logic, to be honest. I don't think it's that big of a deal when it's on a changeover. Yeah. Like, you know I, what I mean? I, like, it's a changeover. It's, you know, and, and if she doesn't take it then, and you say that she's not allowed to take it not on a changeover, and you say you can't, she can't take it before Sloan serves, she's never going to be able to take a medical timeout in that set. Right. So here, here's the question, then. What do we think Vika should have done? 
I think she should have called. Okay, so here's my thing that when it really comes down to this is kind of what my issue was with the whole thing. Right. Is that in her press conference, she says, I should have taken it earlier. Right. She says, my bad. You know, I should have taken it earlier and I took it too late and whatever. Okay. The reason why she didn't take it earlier is because she was winning. Yeah. She wasn't panicking. Right. She was winning. And so even though she felt that discomfort, she didn't take it earlier. And then as things start to kind of derail and she needs kind of a moment in addition to feeling the discomfort, but it also would have been kind of nice to just take a moment and like calm down. Reset. Yeah. Reset. Then she took it. That is obviously it's within the rules and whatever, but I think that that was extremely telling in terms of her competitive nature Mm -hmm. and her personality. And I think that, you know, for, for better and for worse, she is a player who wants to win at all costs. And I think that in this situation, that really, that was what was more off putting to me than taking the 10 minute timeout and icing the kicker. I didn't really care about that stuff as much, although people, other people did, but for me, it was more, okay, like you had this problem you should have taken it when you were up like whatever three, three, three love in the second set, you know, if you had a problem with it or whenever, and then you took it a little too late. So that was my issue, but could she have done anything differently? Yeah. I mean, I've seen it happen on the men's tour where guys will just basically, especially when an injury occurs towards the end of the set and they're up a set, they just kind of try their best to win that set. But if they don't, then they split sets and they call the trainer at the end of the set between sets. Yeah. You know, so no, and that's that's the, those are the things people were trying to compare it to other episodes. Like, well, why did this get more criticism than so and so? Yanko, anything Yanko Tipsarovic has ever done, or you know, this match in the past, or this match. And there are a couple of factors for that. One, she did it right after blowing five match points in the set in the penultimate game of a set. So that was like probably the worst possible time to do that, take a timeout, and sort of stop the match completely from a gamesmanship perspective. And then, secondly. She's the number one defending champion. So she's going to be held to higher standards. It just comes to the territory. She's relevant. Yeah, she's relevant. <laughs> and she won the match. Yeah. These other people who got criticized, like Yanko Tipsarovich, for take, I don't even remember exactly what the specifics were, who were trying to bring that up. I'm pretty sure he lost that match, mm-hmm. as did you know other cases that were brought up. And so when you're a defending champion and you win the match, and then win the tournament eventually, you know, there's been more pressure on you to behave in a manner that people think is befitting of that title so that just goes into sort of you know sports being a morality play for people sometimes which we all should know that it in terms of you know box scores it really isn't right but that's what people idealize sports into yeah and i think that that you know in uh to me personally i don't see i mean i think the relevance issue is really what drove kind of a lot of the attention on this because in case people forget like you know, because I saw a lot of people saying, oh, gender lines, you know, they're beating up on a girl and they feel more comfortable going after a girl and the press and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, well, a few years ago, Agnieszka Ravonska pulled this exact thing and won. Mm-hmm. Uh, she did it against Kamiko Date Krum on an outside court in the yeah. first round. And Kamiko Date Krum had her. I mean, she had her. She was on her way to, like, pulling off the, like, upset in the first round. Uh, I think it might, it might have been 2011. It was. It was the match where her racket snapped in half. Right, exactly. And she called a medical timeout, and Date Krum afterwards was like, yep, like, I'm 40 years old. Like, my body does not... It takes a long time to warm up, and it cools down really quickly. And I think that 
Redvanska's father even admitted, like, yeah, Agnieszka's done that before. Bottom line, though, at the time, Agnieszka's not relevant. She wasn't top 10 at that point. She, she was playing 10. on an outside court. Right. It wasn't. It was the first round of the tournament, I think, maybe second. Right. It's and, like, okay. Yeah. Nobody was, nobody was watching. You yeah. know, like, only a few people, you know, so... You know, there is a difference here, and I'll, I've, I've yet to hear somebody give me a comparison that worked, yeah. where somebody else pulled this exact same move and didn't get called out for it. Djokovic used to do this stuff all the time, and he was, I mean, his reputation is still, it. it's still his reputation. Yeah. Of Mary, Pier- Mary Pierce did something, she took a timeout after losing a set at the right. demise of the 2005 US Open against Dementia, um, but she had just, it was between sets. Yeah. And it was, you know, after the first set, and it was just different. Right. And she went on to win two sets after that. So, no. I think this was a unique case. It was. And I think it'll be interesting to see how Azarenka and the public reacts to Azarenka moving forward, both sides of it. Because Azarenka, if she uses this as more sort of a, I don't know, us-against-the-world motivation, or if, which has always been a little bit of her encore persona anyway, or if she really tries to loosen up and be warmer and whatever, and how fans embrace her, because I assume it will be relatively chilly in Indian Wells and Miami. Do you, what's your sense? Do you think that it's going to be just a PR extravaganza going forward? Or, you know, because I, I do get the sense that, like, she, this really hurt her. Yes. Like, this cut her. Like, she had, she did not see this one coming at all. She did not no. see any of this, 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 the volume of the critique. Because the bottom line is, people don't usually pay attention to her. Yeah. It's true. I mean, she just doesn't get that much attention usually, as as far as the number one goes in the public in the non-hardcore tennis eye. She's been fairly anonymous. Hasn't had done a whole lot of crossover stuff necessarily. Um, so yeah, I, I don't. I think this was tough for her, and she's, there's a lot of interesting things going on with her and Red Foo and whatever else. So clearly, she's trying to get more into the public eye, or that's the one. Interpretation of this whole thing, yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll see how she reacts. Her tennis is always, but that's the thing. Her tennis has been so so reliable lately. Yeah, in in tournaments where she um, plays and continues playing, she's done very very well. Just doesn't lose matches. So that was the thing when she got into the third set of that final against Lina. Like you just kind of knew that Azarenka doesn't lose these kind of matches lately. Yeah. So I was pretty surprised though because I. <laughs> Given everything that happened to Lena in that final, she still was like, she could have pulled it off. She still so could have won that match. And whenever I think about it, I laugh. Like, I just, I think it's just so, just what happened to her in that final, just that the women's final in general was just, I don't understand what, why any of that had to happen. The women's final, we can, let's move on to that. Other half of the draw, well, Lena, anyway, was playing this women's final. And won the first set, fairly sh- shaky first set from both. But Lena was clearly the better player, was taking initiative. And then she was losing the second set, Lena, when she rolled her ankle, and, and was down for a while. Right. And then early in the third set, after a fireworks break, she rolled her ankle again, and then slammed her head into the ground as she hit the hit the court. Not that not as hard as people would think made it out to be at first. I don't think. But it was still, you know, really? a hard court. Yeah, I didn't think it was that bad, her honestly. Head snapped. No, I didn't think it was that bad. Her next she also had, t- she had ponytail padding. I think it yes, was that crucial. was the thing that I was looking for, is whether or not she... Because that, that's happened to me before. Like, mm-hmm. not when I'm playing a Grand Slam final. But <laughs> but I've smacked my head numerous times against um, a hardwood floor. 
um, in sports. And, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it, it depends. Like if, on if you can get, if you can get your ponytail, like to not, to stop, to block it, then. I thought she had actually pretty good ponytail padding okay. there, but I will, but she, but I she was, you know, it, so. she looked a little confused, but then my favorite part of that was after her match, she was asked by somebody, why did you keep falling down? Which <laughs> was a weird question to begin with. And she like immediately blurted out because I'm stupid. And she <laughs> Love her. It was great. Oh, it was pretty word. great. I mean, um, you know, but, I mean, the, you gotta say this. I mean, again, this is kind of like, you know, the defense of women's tennis and WTA and all that. It's like, even though that match was a complete and utter clusterfuck, mm-hmm. like, there were so many storylines coming into that match, heading out of it. I mean, you know, just the contrast in personalities. I'm not even going to do the villain good guy thing, but just, I mean, they are a contrast of personalities, oh, like, sure. however you want to, like, label them. But yeah, her her, post, her post-final press conference was cracking me up. Yeah, no, it was it was funny. She was she was in good spirits, and she was clearly. I saw her, you know, crying in the hallway after the match. She was crying on a different interview she did with Chinese uh, Chinese website. But she, uh, yeah, but she stayed in pretty good spirits the whole time. And you just feel like she's got. I have to think she's got another a deep slam run in her, not another title. I mean, she I just so. her her up her peak play is too good not to keep making deep runs. Absolutely, and she plays well on all surfaces. Yeah, she really does. Grass needs to be her best surface. Yeah, exactly. She has so. a shot on every single in every single one. So, you know, for whatever reason, she just hasn't been able to put it together at the U.S. Open. But, um, yeah, it's she was great. I thought that that she was she was a total revelation. Um, even though I picked her to make the final, I didn't really think that she'd be playing. She would have played as well as she did. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was a master class the way that she beat Sharapova. Yeah. Let's, um, talk, let's talk about Sharapova a little bit and that whole how that. <laughs> happened because Sharapova was the story of the first you know five rounds of the tournament she just played unbelievably well this tournament dropped I think what something like five games in her first four matches or something something like that yeah something like that yeah I think it was uh, yeah it was it was actually that and then only like nine in her first five it was just out of control domination and then it suddenly stopped against Lima and she lost two and two right so what do we what do we make of 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 Sharapova's uh week in Melbourne. Yeah, did I mean, the Greek did the Grigor power simply run out? I yeah, powered by Grigor. Um yeah, I I don't think that we learned anything new. You know, this was my this is again going back to kind of what I was saying before in terms of this tournament. I don't really think that we learned anything new about anyone except maybe Lena. Yeah, that's part um, yeah, maybe maybe a little bit on Sloan. But that's maybe, but like she beat. I mean, big. She win didn't beat everything. very many big players. Yeah, she she beat who she had to beat, and she her jaw opened up and quarterfinals, and then she. Oh, you know who? You know who we actually made a pretty good impression in this tournament was Kuznetsova. True. She True. made the quarters. True. Out of nowhere, so. Yeah, but she, well. We know that she's capable. Of yeah, that. you know what I mean. Like we know that she's capable of it, and then and even I th- I think she and Lena are kind of on the same on the same level where it's like I know you're capable of that, and I was pleasantly surprised to see you actually live up to it. Yeah. Right. So, but with Sharapova, it's like we know she doesn't have a B game. She doesn't have a backup plan. No. And she went in with the uh, you know the game plan that everybody comes into against Lena, which is hit it to her forehand, and. Lena's forehand did not break down, and once that kind of didn't work, and 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 Lee was playing pretty well and serving well, 
it was over. It was one way traffic it's, quickly. It's true. No, it, that's true. And she and but Sharapova had been so so impressive. Really, I mean, I can't understand that early in the tournament against Venus, especially. But that match is one of the most impressive performances I've ever seen any player deliver outside of maybe Serena at the Olympics recently mm. to talk about in the last 12 months anyway. But it's just like comprehensive beatdown of a really good player who is not playing badly at all. Yeah. And so that was that was impressive to see that end. And the other story early was Serena. Both of them won their first round match in Del Bagels. And then Serena had a little hiccup when she rolled her ankle the first time. And then uh, she came back in the fourth round and absolutely dismantled Kirilenko 2-0 and served like 87% first serves mm-hmm. and was just out of control dominant. And then she's leading Sloan by a set and a break and tweaks her leg again and sends her into back spasms and that just got ugly. And that was just a sort of big what if for this tournament, I think. It's what if Serena had stayed healthy. Right. I, I don't even know if there was a what if because it's. I think everyone thinks that she would have won. Right. No, I mean, she was the you know presumptive favorite. Um, across the board. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if anybody picked, didn't pick her to win. And, you know, and I think that in my, my SI preview, I said, like, the only reason to pick against Serena is if you, th- is basically you're rolling the dice and you're saying she's going to get injured. Yeah. That And that was it. Otherwise, tennis, there's no way. Good, and good picks by you this tournament, by the way. Picking I think Lina I nailed this final one. And Serena getting, only losing if she got hurt. So good job. Good I, job. I think I, I think I nailed it. I, I had a good one. I feel like... I feel like this was my Lena Roland Garros. Everyone has that. I, I did really well in my Wimbledon last year predictions and oh. haven't done predictions since because I felt like I just peaked and was going to stop. Yeah. I don't like doing predictions, but it's, you know, obviously it's kind of part and parcel of people like reading predictions and railing on you for them. Oh, um, but It's part of punditry. Which is yeah, one of our just steps. kind of have to do it. And I'll admit it, sometimes I'm just rolling dice. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. This is a fun sentence to write, so I'm going to pick you. <laughs> Let's do it. You have to pick things out of boredom sometimes. You do. You which do. is like, which is honestly why I picked Nadal to lose in the second round of Wimbledon last year. Right. Non humble brag. And yeah, sometimes things happen. Mm-hmm. The men went very much to form. Novak Djokovic won his sixth Grand Slam title and his fourth in Australia, beating Andy Murray in four. The top four made the final four. American men did it in the second week. Is there anything there to surprise us in any letter of this tournament, do you think, Courtney? So we didn't maybe know how crazy Janovitz could get? Yeah, no, so. it's, it's, I mean, that was obviously the, the moment of the first week was the Janowitz meltdown. Um, yeah. Also, can we, can we, can we discuss um, the chair umpire who did that too and, and her haircut now? That, <laughs> I, that was I, one of my most surprising hair, moments this time. The tournament. haircut that shall not be named? Yes. Yeah, it's unfortunate. It's just not a great look. She looked so much, I mean, she was fine. She was perfectly normal looking. And then she went and got like, Oh my gosh, I can't remember right now. Somebody had the perfect description of that haircut. I think you did. I think you. we were talking about this on, on GChat <laughs> as we're wont to do with the pressing issues of the tournament. And you would describe it as like not like a pixie cut or something. It's yeah. like a schoolboy haircut. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like she went in to get a pixie and she walked out a schoolboy. I don't know. It was, it's, uh, almost as, it's almost as if she was giving a description of how she wanted her hair done and then she just suddenly stopped mid-description. <laughs> and that's what happened. Well played, sir. So. The umpire we're discussing is Maria Chichak, by the way. That was not great. Um, but yeah, so other than that, I don't know if there were really that many you know, weird, crazy incidents. I guess the Djokovic-Orenka match was the big sort of moment yeah. of the match in terms of a classic match. That's the one match of this tournament that will get thrown in the vault, you know? Correct, correct. Because, you know, I mean, otherwise, 
you know, I, I really, really disagreed with people trying to put up that Ferrer Almagro match as one of the matches of the tournament behind awful. behind Vavrinka, and I just I think that we are having a difficult time describe it. I don't know, like. To, I mean, there's good tennis and there's crap tennis, and both can create great drama. Mm-hmm. But let's not pretend that just because there's drama that it's good tennis. Because if, right. if drama equals good tennis, then I don't know why people rip on the WTA. No, that's that's <laughs> absolutely true. And if like, people, I think people embrace the WTA. But like for example, no one is talking about the Robson Kvitova match. Right. That's like a classic because that was really unwatchable it in was. large points of it. Even if it did go to what like ten eight in the third, right. and was dramatic. Like right. there were just some rough, rough patches of that. Exactly. Exactly. And. I wrote about that match, like, on 40 Deuce or something like that. And I was like, you know, good for Laura Robson for coming into press and being like, that match sucked. <laughs> like, yeah. that was not good tennis. Like, let's own up to the fact. Big win, career, you know, another career scalp and whatever. But at least, like, the kid understands when she plays good tennis and when she plays bad tennis. Now, I know this is a men's segment, so I will Sorry. make this part quick, I guess. But what what do we make of Patrick Fitova's start to 2013? Because I think this is a sort of sound the alarm moment for her. I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I, I'm a big Kvitova defender, and I, I have kind of, through 2012, I was like, it's all right, she'll get there, she'll get there, and um, now I just, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely concerned. It's starting to look kind of like an Ivanovich style, just can't remember how to hit the ball anymore. Yeah. You know, sort of thing, so. Don't remember what got you there. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully she can... Uh get it together because she can i mean if she played really well in montreal and cincinnati last year and the u.s open actually played okay um so she can play on american hard courts now mm-hmm. assuming that you know roll the dice with the asthma stuff yeah and clay has been okay for her so i mean there's no reason why she can't come back and get back on her horse soon but she can turn it around in a week i mean i really i really really thought that she was going to win paris this week mm-hmm. um so that was quite the shock to lose to Mladenovic, who played well. I watched most of that match, but it's just brutal. She just, she's, she's just hitting. She's just, she's playing the same way she used to play. She's just not executing. Yeah. You know, it's not that she forgot how to like hit her. I don't know. Maybe she has, but she's just not executing the shot at all. Um, and a lot of that's footwork and fitness and that sort of stuff. But Mladenovic blew her off the court. Yeah. So, by the way, Mona Bartol just won that tournament recently, yes. um, and so I think we're excited about that because we always liked watching her play a lot and thought yeah. she had a lot of potential. Indian, so. Indian Wells will be like a reunion of sorts with Mona Barthol, who almost yeah. took out Azarenka last year. We really, I remember you and I really, really thought that Barthol was going to end the streak yeah. that one day, um, but she didn't. But uh, but hopefully, I lo- I love watching Mona Barthol play. I think Such she's got a, a great game. game. Just hope she can do it for a full year because she couldn't do it last year. No, not at all. Anyway, back to the men. Back Sorry. to the Djokovic as a <laughs> Djokovic Varenka. What do what do you make of uh, how I guess both of those guys came out of that match? Varenka embrace moment for him, sort of his you know I don't know Murray at Wimbledon type moment. People yeah. were really falling in love with the gracious loser or something. So what do you make of that whole match and how it panned out and what it says about the middle ranks of or the sort of you know thirteen through sixteen guys in the ATP? Yeah, uh, you know I think that it was. I mean, obviously it was a great match and uh, just thoroughly enjoyed watching every single point of that match. Um, yeah. I think that it was good, again, to see a player really take it to these defensive-minded top guys. 
Mm-hmm. So just to see Wawrinka just almost kind of like, you know, have that like uh, what Russell. I always... Yeah, Rosal, or even like a, what I used to always call the Schiavone moment, where it's like, well, I'm not going to win by just sitting back here and just playing the way I always play. This person's like, this just not going to work, so I'm just going to hit the crap out of it and play like inspired tennis, and that's what he did. Um, and he had every right to win that match. I mean, he really, really did. Um, would have been a tremendous upset. I think, obviously, you know, does it rewrite the, the book on Vavrinka? I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, one match does not... There's an addendum so, in the book now, I think. There's, there's like a, there's a, I don't know, it depends on whether, you, you say addendum, I say footnote, okay. uh, as of right now, because I think that his history of kind of being soft and, um, you know, really wilting against the top guys has been, you know... Uh, well, well documented. Well documented, and then, so this is more of a footnote than a chapter. I wouldn't devote an entire chapter of, oh, remember that one time that Stan played really well, but he still lost? not a really readable chapter so and then you know obviously that sort of continued this weekend in davis cup with the seven hour doubles match that he double faulted on match point Um, it was actually it was actually cued nelly double faulted i got that wrong it was cued nelly apparently so the first report said it was ravenka that i saw so i actually actually got tweeted that wrong but it was apparently cued nelly okay but it was him it was him failing to close out a seven hour match yeah so you know i mean it was great it was wonderful tennis like i will give him more of like I'll look at him differently when I see him in the draw, you know, like maybe I'll pause a little bit more, right? you know, in terms of, of making picks, but that's all I think it has to be. I mean, I think Milos Ronic had always gotten that sort of dangerous 13 through 16 guy talk recently. Yeah. Like, Oh, who got, who gets Ronic? Who's Ronic tough fourth round match. And Ronic honestly hasn't delivered on that threat ever at the grand slam mm-hmm. since he's been in that sort of breath. Um, maybe now Roman is sort of the more dangerous person he looked for. Right, exactly. Like I'll, that's, all, that's, that's all it is. Yeah. I'll back his chances a little bit more, but at the end of the day, do I think that he's going to be off like winning tournaments and stuff? I mean, I don't know. Not really. I don't really think that it changes my kind of perception of Wawrinka. Yeah. It's it's very... It's, and plus, I think I've, I've been burned once before on this, uh, looking at you, Fernando Verdasco, mm-hmm. where, you know, one match and all of a sudden it's like, oh, he is this good. Right. And, you know, and, and even if he does sustain that level for like a year, what will happen is that he will realize that it doesn't actually get him anywhere. It's incredibly like, rare for people to completely change their, you know, their scouting report mid-career. I mean, it just right. really doesn't happen that much. Well, the only person who I can really think of who's done it, well, I can't think of many men who did it completely, but like, I don't know, Sarah Arani or something. Right. And that's so, that's so, so rare. Right, it is. It's very rare, and I think that especially, I, th- I see this much more often on the men's tour, where you have kind of those outside of the top ten guys who have that potential that they could be a top ten guy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but once they realize, and so they gun for it, but then once they realize that like how much of a stronghold the top four guys have on all the major titles, including the Masters, and that it's too much work, <laughs> effectively, it's too much work to be a top tenner. They're kind of, yeah. and they're like, oh, I actually kind of enjoyed my life when I was outside of the top 10. Like, I was still a top 25 guy. Like, I'd score a couple of upsets, but no expectations. I was kind of still on the down low. I could still, like, go out at night at tournaments. <laughs> on like, the down low, okay. Yeah, you know, like, whatever. And, um, yeah, you know, sometimes when you realize how much effort, it, how much work it takes for minimal gain 
You just rather yeah. just put in like the six, the eighty percent, and and you know be a B plus student. It's a demoralizing sport. I mean, you have it to is. lose every unless you win a title. So it's tough. So sometimes maybe it's just better to just not have the hope. Yeah. Right? A... If you don't believe that you can win, if you go into every tournament not believing that you're actually going to win it, <laughs> it you're... sounds weird, but like psychologically that makes sense, right? Yeah. So let's talk about the American guys then. Sam Query lost in the third round. He was the last one left. He was seated. He lost to Vavrinka. Harrison got blown out by Djokovic. A couple other guys made second round. And probably most disturbingly, I guess, Brian Baker went down with injury against Query in the second round. Sad. So it was just not... That was... This was a depressing turn in a lot of ways. The first week <laughs> really had a was. bunch of... I mean, first, first, not to sort of, you know, laugh at it, because it was all like, ugh, but... Uh, Baker, who's been this, you know, great comeback story, gets hurt, looked looked really bad initially, and still is not great, but it's not as severe as many people thought it was. Hopefully he'll be back by the clay season, I guess now. Um, Brad Drew, the ATP head, was now he been diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. So and this was this was again, like we said, not the not a tournament to remember. Maybe maybe it's not the happy slam. No, this was not a very happy slam. Anyway, back 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 to the Americans, Courtney. What do you what do you make of the future of Americans American men's tennis if there is one to speak of for well, the next while? I think it was quite interesting that on ESPN that Patrick McEnroe uh, made a comment that um, he has yet to see any performance by uh, any of the like under twenty one set of guys um, that makes him believe that any of them is going to be a top player. Mm. And and he like he wasn't just talking about like at the Australian Open, he was just talking about like ever. And that would include Raonic, that would include Dimitrov, that would include Harrison, um and, and Tomic. Yeah, yeah, and Tomic. And his comment, you know, obviously it's you know, like I I very rarely take kind of Patrick McEnroe's comments seriously when they're pumping up the prospects of US tennis because obviously that's within his Kind of that's his job. It doesn't mean that he doesn't believe that or, or that it's incorrect. I just kind of there's more bias there, so I kind of just grain of salt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas if he's gonna if he does go cutting against it, I'm like, oh, interesting. Um, so yeah, kind of down talking down Harrison was was an interesting one. I don't think that there's much to be to kind of get excited about with American men's tennis right now. Not even talking about the future. I'm talking about like right now. We're talking about the next, like, next three, four years. Yeah, it's, I mean, who's really going to come up? I think that this was a really big, obviously, as you were mentioning, you know, uh, Djokovic kind of was blistering everybody at the Australian Open this year. But I just really felt like that Harrison match was kind of a stark display to me as to the gap. Yeah. Um, And it was really kind of one of those, like, yeah, I think maybe it's time to sell Ryan Harrison moments. And uh, at least, you know, came across my head. And then I was like, no, I've made a New Year's resolution to be, like, much more understanding and patient with the young players. So I'm not going to, like, sound the alarm. But, like, that was kind of my knee-jerk reaction. That was, was, I mean, that's the thing with Harrison. I mean, Harrison has always, has always talked an extremely good talk. And that doesn't, that's not maybe as negative as it sounds. Right. There, I think that is important to, you know, have the right mindset that you are ready to succeed. Because like you talked about with the other ATP guys, maybe sort of threw in the towel right. before they really let themselves try. And I think that is a factor sometimes. And Harrison does not do that. Right. But at the same time, Harrison, or anyway, the way that it sort of struck me is that Jim Courier 
I guess who's the Davis Cup captain was doing the on- U.S. Davis Cup captain was doing the on-court interviews in Australia. He did the one after that match, and he was trying to I guess frame Harrison's performance better or something by saying, "Remember the first time you played at the Australian Open, Novak, and you lost early to Marat Safin, like oh one and two or something." And Djokovic was like, "Yeah, you know, it's great future for him. Whatever, I know how important it is." But that was Djokovic's first ever Grand Slam what? match, was... and this is this is Harrison's eleventh Grand Slam, and in Djokovic's eleventh Grand Slam, he made the U.S. Open final in two thousand seven U.S. Open. So, and he and the next one he won, the eight Australian Open. That's the thing, you know. I mean, so, I, just... I mean. Harrison has had some really brutal draws. Yes. He really has. And so the fact that he hasn't made it by a second round of the Grand Slam, maybe it's a little bit, you know, harsh for him because he could have probably made a third round if he got a different draw. But beyond that, I don't know. He just still doesn't have a top 10 win. His first top 15 win came against Isner in Sydney when Isner was hurt. We can talk about Isner later, but Isner sort of, you know, needs to be sputtering a little bit with what he's trying to do. Um, yeah, so it's been, it's been unencouraging for them. Yeah. The one guy, the one guy who did really impress me, a couple of guys impressed me there, but again, the upside isn't what maybe we're used to expecting from like Roddick or all the past slam champions, Sampras, Agassi, Chang, Curry or whatever. No, this um, is definitely not the golden, the there's not a golden, a golden generation. generation for sure. But I thought Smichek played really well in the two matches I saw him in. He took a set off Ferrer, which nobody did for a while in the tournament. Mm-hmm. So I think he can be like a top, this is again what we're saying, like a top like 70 guy. I think that Steve Johnson played really well against Amagro. It took him five in the first round. I think he'd be like a top, like outer top 50 guy. Mm-hmm. Pretty sure, if not a little higher. Wow, outer so, top 50? With that backhand? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, why not? I put him, I think, I put I think, him, I put I him think in the Smich range. Okay. We'll see. Yeah. yeah, they actually played recently in Maui. Uh, um, Maui. Anyway, not that not that anyone cares. Um, <laughs> Only you. <laughs> I, I was just looking at challenger draws like an hour ago, so I know that. <laughs> Sorry, I talked to Sam Quarry about it a little bit. There, it's like, who do you do you see anybody coming up? And he was like, yeah, I think you know, Steve Johnson's been doing well. He's definitely gonna be top hundred. And it's like, that's sort of what we're settling for now. Right. This is what we're talking about now. You know, and I think uh, you know Jack Sock is another guy to, to to keep an eye out for, but who knows what's going on there? But you know, it's just hard. I mean, even with Ryan Harrison, as much as I track him and write about him and everything, every single time I look up his ranking, it's always lower than I thought it, than I think it is. And right. I think that that is is just really a, a testament to kind of his weird aura. Like you know, he, what I mean? he, he just he is he he does have that. You can maybe describe that a little more because I've definitely been in tournaments like local. I mean, this happened very clearly in Miami last year. There's a lot of like, there's a lot of local media in Miami. People write for Miami papers and mm-hmm. stuff. Probably more than other tournaments for some reason. And Harrison had won his first round match and had done press. I don't think I want to go into his press for some reason. I mean, you, you like we've discussed, you really can't make it to the majority of press conferences right. at a tournament just because of scheduling, time management reasons. And the people, the Miami people, came back from this and were so so high on Ryan Harrison. Mm-hmm. They were like convinced he was going to be better in the next round. They thought he really was, you know, next big thing because he does. Like I said, talk incredibly well. He's he, he's he's got he's top a great salesman of himself. He's got top respect. fifteen aura. Yeah, like you know does. what I mean. Like if you if you had no idea and you walked into a room and you talked to him and you know you'd never seen him play a match, like you would walk out of there thinking that he was a top fifteen player and the youngest in the top twenty and on the verge of great things. Yeah. But then you watch him play a match, 
and you don't and you, look at and you don't understand and you don't understand like why anybody's talking about him honestly yeah. because that defensive he's i think we've talked about this before where either you and i talked about it offline or on a podcast but he's Andy Roddick without a serve no late Andy Roddick late, late Andy Roddick without a serve and that's a problem like yeah. you know Harrison you know, just he wants to grind. He was playing more offensive in this tournament, and he did. I did ask him about that after his first round match mm-hmm. against Santiago Geraldo, which he won. And he was literally repeatedly having linesmen the back court like dodge out of his way because of how far around the court he was running, how mm-hmm. far back. It happened like multiple times. He was like, and he said that he's trying to be more aggressive this year. So we'll see if that happens. Um, it might. Then he was sort of stepping on the baseline against Djokovic a little bit more than he had been in the last match. But he was also getting killed. Yeah. So, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. And, you know, obviously don't wish anything against him. He's, you know, gone about things for the most part yeah, the right way in absolutely. terms of training. And the, you know, temper tantrum stuff seems to be pretty far behind him. At least, you know, for the last, since the Olympics, anyway. Yeah, he's been better. He's been much better. And I think that... And it never really bothered me that much to begin with, honestly. No, but... I thought it was always fun. I mean, I thought it was just funny. But, um, you know, it's it's just tennis is a funny sport that way because, you know, he's out there doing everything the right way, kind of off court. And, you know, he's been basically a professional since he's 14 in terms of, act, you know, acting and conducting himself and the way that yeah. he commits to the sport mm-hmm. and all this sorts of stuff. Great mentorship, mentoring and stuff like that. I and think then, I know where you're going with it. <laughs> you see Bernard Tomic. <laughs> Oh boy. He literally oh, plays this game sometimes. Like, it's like a lark. Like, he's just like, mm, I don't know. Like, he he's stumbled onto, <laughs> like, Rod Laver Arena when somebody handed him a tennis racket. <laughs> like, and, and a I, tennis racket and a hat. And a hat. <laughs> Go out there, Bernie. And I mean, and again, I adore Tomic. Like, I think that, I, I mean, in terms of his tennis, like, I, and I mean, as a writer, he's hilarious. As a blogger, anyway, because he's always giving you something. But, you know, tennis is funny that way that, you know, you have the guy who has to completely work and work and you see the effort on his face and he's like a top, you know, 60 player and you see Tomic. Tomic, we haven't talked about it since. I guess maybe we did a show after Hotman. Um, but Tomic has been started in 2013 really well. Mm-hmm. He's really probably the biggest surprise of the year so far on the men's side. Just in terms of expectations right. were very low and he's done great. Yep. But then a few days after, like literally two days after the tournament, um, I was leap getting ready, packing up uh, the apartment I was staying at this, this year, and the guy, the guys like the landlords are hosting us. Uh, we're like, oh, did you hear that? You know, our Bernie got arrested again, or got his license taken away. I was like, oh, what? <laughs> so he apparently got a speeding ticket, which didn't sound that bad to me. It was no, only like was 10 going, miles per hour over the yeah. speed limit, which wouldn't really usually even be a ticket in the U.S. But he was still driving a yellow Ferrari. Yes, which was is he? What people sort of, yeah, oh, okay. yellow Ferrari. Yeah. So, you know, he, Bernie be Bernie. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, he's been great. And I mean, I think that he, uh, you know, I'm very curious to see, I mean, that was one thing that I definitely, once the Australian Open ended and kind of take a step back, one of the things that I was really looking forward to was just how is Tomic's year going to go? That might be my most, like, I mean, I know a lot of people like the number one story is obviously Rafa for the year, um, in Mm -hmm. terms of like what happens when he comes back. But for me, like very close to that is is Tomic, um, and seeing how, what he does for the rest of of the year, and because he played some tremendous tennis, and at the same time, I wonder, I would. There's a part of me that thinks that he might kind of round it a little bit, 
which is like he'll win yeah sydney and he'll play some really memorable matches in losing um but he won't make the breakthrough uh, again this year but i don't know he got like a tough draw i think i think his upside is bigger than ronich's i mean in terms of what he can do and what we've seen him do against big players there were moments in that better match at the australian place where you saw like wow he's like right there with him and can really he was pounding that forehand it was incredible that fo- yeah. his forehand is just that's that shot's been a revelation this year all yeah. the other stuff was like yeah he can pump up his serve and everything else but the forehand has been that makes that turns tomic into a completely different player yeah so i think he's the one of the the <laughs> guys who get discussed in this you know breath uh harrison dimitrov Tomic and Ronich, who I think he's the one who really can be a top five guy for sure. Mm-hmm. If everything falls into place. <laughs> there are so, and putting the pieces together for Bernie is not going to be <laughs> because the pieces are all over the place. I just have this mental image of Tomic wearing his hat with a Rubik's Cube, <laughs> looking <laughs> oh, very <God>. confused. <laughs> it's, it's tough. And he, he's still, and he's still so much fun in press, Tomic. <laughs> The very first presser, the, one of the first questions he got was about Federer. I'm sure everyone's heard about this. And he and he would just sort of absentmindedly said, you know, oh, you know, third round match against Federer, how do you think you're doing? He's like, oh, well, you know, if, yeah, if he gets that far, then it was, it was just how he thought. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was just like this sort of stream of consciousness thing with him. And that was his first thought was that Federer might not make it to the third round. Obviously, I, Bernard Tomich, will. Right. But Federer might not. So Bern- Bernie un- unfiltered. It's pretty great. Davis Cup has already started this week, and the first round has been undermanned and fairly surprising, but mostly undermanned, just causing the surprises, I guess. The most notable one of which is still ongoing as we record this, but it's looking pretty clear the the mighty Canadians are going to take out Spain, which I think is a reflection of how broken the Davis Cup format is. <laughs> I mean, just because there's absolutely nobody from Spain representing them. Yep. They had they had their the people that have had playing singles this week in Vancouver, Spain, is uh, Guillermo Garcia Lopez, who's about to lose to Ronich. Um, they had Albert Albert Ramos, who I always think should be Alberto and isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, Albert Ramos and Marcel Granollers, who's secretly a uh, top twenty player somehow. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so they're about to lose to Canada, and they're going to play Italy in the next round. And just those are not countries that should be in a Davis Cup semifinal either of them but one of them's gonna be so what do we think about Davis Cup in this day and age I mean I still think because it's... because I want I want to like it but there are there's like at least four teams in this first round of the world group that only have one top 100 player playing for them yeah and well, I just think it's broken do you think that the, that that Spain genuinely thought that they would come out of Canada like that the team that they sent was really going to come out with a win I don't think they plan to take the team they sent. I think they probably assumed that either Ferrer or Almagro would suck it up and go for them. Well, I guess the Al- would Almagro would have changed everything. And, and would, Ferrer would have too. But I don't think. But I. But I wouldn't. My understanding was that Ferrer wasn't going to play. I, th- I thought that was like existing for a while. Yeah. Like he was. He's he's wiped. Like he's exhausted. Or um, they could have gotten Verdasco or Feliciano Lopez. I mean, there's so many people who could have gone there to, to save them and get. The win, the needed win over Frank Dancevic, which I didn't get. Yeah, this is the critique of Dancevic did like really, really well. Apparently, yeah, no, that's. I mean, you have to. To I mean, to that wasn't a five set eked out win. I mean, he played very like, well. <laughs> yeah, one, two, and two, or something yeah. over Grand Lairs. 
Exactly. So um, I would say that the you know the the whole issue with Davis Cup is the same that it's always been, and it's uh, it's the same with Fed Cup as well, which is that how Im- how much import can a competition have when the top players don't care about it, yeah. um, or care about it selectively? Now that's a, a cruel way to put it. I mean, because I don't think that like Rafael Nadal doesn't care about Davis Cup, and I wouldn't say that like. You know, but it's also not a top priority. Yeah, but but at the end of the day, they have to manage their schedules, and the schedule's already too 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 packed. The year after the Olympics, like I think the players are already kind of burnt out. They want to, you know, if it's a week that they could take off, they'd prefer not to play. You know, just look at Switzerland. Yeah. God, who they lose to? Those are the Czechs. The Czechs, right? But without Stepanek, if Fed had played, Switzerland would have won. Oh yeah, easily. So, you know, I mean, obviously that's Roger, but. You know, that's why when you can say these things, how solid is the result that you're talking about? Right. Like, in, in the middle of the last decade, like, 06, 07, 08 or so, one of the most dominant um, Fed Cup teams was Italy. Mm-hmm. Not because they were had the best players by any stretch. They didn't have any top tenors at that point. Mm-hmm. But because they got to play a lot of home ties on clay, and they had amazing attendance. And their players always showed up. And, like, the top Russians, like Sharapova... Dementia, you know, top Americans, the Williams sisters, top French players like Moresmo, whoever else. They didn't always show up. Bartoli. Yeah, Bartoli apparently is coming back. Yeah, she's coming back. But, like, you know, you want to talk about France and why France has just never been really relevant in Fed Cup. Bartoli, their top 10 players, never played. Or not never, but hasn't played in like eight years or whatever. So, yeah, you know, that's a problem because then the competition is, is completely. Nor can you expect the players to play when you put it a week after the Australian Open and some opposite side of the world plays. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just needs to be fewer times a year. Ideally one. But at least, if Nate, what I'm saying with a few teams of the top 100 is they could easily string it to an eight-team eight world group like they have in the Fed Cup. Yeah. And that'd be fine. And make it just three rounds. That's a big start. Yeah, because wouldn't you rather... I mean, I guess, you know, and I, I'm, I'm pretty kind of... I haven't, I'm agnostic when it comes to Davis Cup reorg and the format and stuff because i at the same time you know there are so many like great memories of davis cup that are you know that are made because of the format you know kind of these journeymen having these hero moments and things like that and an opportunity yeah. to shine and you know that's great and you know it's been a banner weekend for the brazilians i mean if they <laughs> i don't think that they'll win i think that the query will still win this upcoming fifth rubber but no. um you know, for, for Bellucci and for Mello and Soares and all those guys, like, it's huge. And credit um, to the American guys, because they actually do turn up for Davis Cup a lot. They do. But also, to sort of immediately reverse that point, kind of not, well, not in reverse whatsoever, but to undermine it a little bit. One of the things that makes that possible, I think, is that a lot of people don't realize that the federations do play do pay players to play mm-hmm. Davis Cup. And I think the USDA might just pay more than some other federations. It's a big part of that. Oh yeah, that's always because it's, it's a bigger, it's a bigger. You know, they have a they're grand slam country. Australia apparently plays pays a lot of money to their players to play these things. That's why they always have Stoser and Layton Hewitt and never showing up to Davis Cup. It's a little iffy. Never right underestimate the behind the scenes politicking that's involved whenever federations are involved. Always assume the players are do are making their schedule based on money. Basically, yeah, that's also it's a very, very safe because why wouldn't they? They're professionals. They're doing a job. They know they have a limited career. They're independent contractors. Yeah. They don't get no so. 401k. There's no, you know, employment until they're 65. They got to make their money and they got to put it away. Yeah. 
So when Dolgopolov hadn't been playing Davis Cup for Ukraine and didn't get into the Olympics because of that, it's because he didn't wasn't getting enough money from them. I mean, you know, it's just always money is almost always the answer for these things. So yep. that's that. Um, yeah, and Milos Ronis just beat just yeah. beat Krasilovas to make it official. So that's but, you know, the end I of mean, I, I think that for you, the... have a, you could have like a Spain Switzerland like no, I actually couldn't play. Imagine if like Nadal and Federer play each other in like a relegation Davis Cup match. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that on some level, though, for Spain losing, I think that they're probably relieved. Yeah. I think that, you know, it's been quite the run. It's been, you know, and so long as it was it was a good run, they could just kind of keep going and, and committing, and it helped that the Olympics were coming up, so the players wanted to play anyway in order to get their, their uh, to be uh, eligible for the Olympics, and so now they can just kind of chill out. Agreed. We were, we were just talking about the uh, Canadians winning in Davis Cup, and one of the things got some attention during their second rubber win of Dan Civic over Marcel Granollers was a tweet that was sent by one of their absent countrymen, Peter Polanski, which um, described the dominant performance of Dan Civic as, I believe, quote, Frankie raping, uh, unquote. And yeah, so that raised some eyebrows quickly and got a lot of but the word how would you describe the reaction to that Courtney? Uh, it's some blowback. Blowback. You know, some some blowback. I don't know if it was outrage. I was kind of in and out of it. I didn't really sit in front of my computer tracking it. But yeah, I mean because I think that the problem was look, we all say stupid things. I've definitely said things where that are just dumb and then somebody calls me on it and I'm like, oh, you know what? That was I can see how that was either misinterpreted or I can see how I was flat out wrong to say that I guess, yeah. you know, like whatever. And you backtrack and you apologize. Um, it, it's not that hard. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? And that's like, the thing with Twitter. Twitter can be so stream of conscious with how easy it is to send a tweet. Mm-hmm. Um, that you can say, you can say things you're just like, Ugh, right. And you can on. forget sometimes that you're tweeting and you're not texting. Like, if that was a private joke, like, you know what I mean? Like there are things that you can say to your friends where everybody knows that you're not a misogynist and an asshole, (laughs) you know, and you can kind of, to the extent that you can get away with making rape jokes, which is an argument separate of of itself. But you know, like we all say things in closed company that we would be fired for, (laughs) Oh yeah, you know, so things happen, you know, like we all say things and sometimes you forget the forum and all that sort of stuff. But, like once and with Twitter, sometimes you feel it. like you're set, you're tweeting to a very select group of people who like respond to you occasionally. Right. Like for Polanski in a specific case, like he's like Twitter fr- and friends in real life and friends with like I don't know, Ryan Williams and like Tennis Sandgren and a few other people um, on there who are just fellow guys who play challengers and qualities and tournaments and stuff. Um, and so maybe he thinks he's just ref- you know talking to them, but then right. he has three thousand something followers who right. most of whom didn't sign up for that so right and and so you know That's once basically... he gets called on it for the for him to then not backtrack and that was the surprising part of this yeah that was the surprise i'm not i'm never surprised when guys say crap like that like you this is the internet people say things that are really really idiot idiotic but like to be called on it and to stand defiantly and attempt to defend one's use of equating a sporting feat with forced sex on a woman <laughs> or anyone like that seems like a bit uh yeah i was gonna say i was like not just women for anyone um that seems a bit ill-conceived so his response he sent up a follow-up follow-up tweet that says 
If you can't pick up on harmless slang terms in today's world and get bent out of shape quickly, I hear Mickey Mouse is looking for followers. Peter Flancy is so edgy. So edgy to drop a Mickey Mouse reference? Oh, Canada. He is not Mickey Mouse. He's not oh, Mickey Canada. Mouse. The edgiest Canadian I've ever heard of. Yeah. Him um, and Alanis Morissette, I guess, in I her older days. Avril? I don't know. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I hear Avril. I, I hear Chad Kroger is looking for followers. Oh, um, boy. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's that defiance and that attempt to defend it. I mean, I, I'm not going to sit here on a tennis podcast and have to explain why Frankie raping is an inappropriate tweet in the first place um, and why, you know, there's a reason why rape jokes aren't made and there's a reason why it's uh, him def- trying to defend himself is just so ignorant. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean he's a bad person, but, no. you know, it speaks to a person's personality and who they are as a person that you can't just to your 3000 followers say, okay, sorry, my bad. Like didn't mean anything by it. Private joke, like whatever it is, you know, like, but at least admit that you've done something wrong was disappointing. And seeing again, seeing like, you know, some of his challenger buddies tweeting. And they all rallied around him. Yeah. Being like, you're the man, dude. I'm like, dude, just go do your keg stand somewhere else. Like, that's sort of what I was just wanted to get to with this um, topic. This is not quite my my rant for the, for the episode. I have a different one coming up later, but um, yeah, it's just like we should. I don't know why anyone would necessarily hold him to that highest standard or expect. That's true. Better. I mean, he's a. I don't know exactly how old he is. He's twenty something years old. He's somebody who, you know, playing pro tennis, traveling around the world in a very isolated bubble for a long time, and hangs out with other people his own age, other guys. And, yeah, this is just sort of the life they, they lead. So, I don't know, you know, sending him links to Jezebel articles or anything is going to fix stuff. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, he's... He certainly isn't reading it to begin with. And and we've alluded to this before, Ben, like, you know, guys on the ATP, like, why, for whatever reason, fans think that they're these enlightened progressive men I've, I've never really understood because you know they're not they're not not i mean again they're not bad people but that doesn't no. mean that they're like highly not even educated it's not an issue of education but they're not sensitive guys who no. understand and care about the plight of women and women's rights and gay rights and equality and you know very basic things that i think a lot of us kind of take for granted that people believe in sure and that's Honestly, a lot of why I asked Joe Wilfried Sanka what he thought about the women having upsets at the Australian Open this That's year. That's right, which you guys. Got... That was Ben's question. That was me. Um, I got yeah. So I asked him what he why he thought about that because I've heard him say some fairly belittling, not super respectful. Yeah, exactly. We'll say not super respectful. So then he went on this big thing about how it was hormones and stuff. And I think yeah, do you think tennis? I think pro athletes sometimes get held to a higher standard. They're not they're not elected officials. Maybe they're supposed to be role models on some level. And the good ones, and some people do understand that for sure, some players, and embrace that part of it. Not most. Not all. Definitely not all. And uh, I think it's just good to remind ourselves of that sometimes. Because everyone's, you know, human, and humans sometimes do crappy things, or say crappy things, or think crappy things, or just, you know, think things you might not. Right, and and so. I think that there's a part of it, too, where people conflate the the idea that these guys, and the women, like, you know, women, mm-hmm. you know, say some, the, the women of the WTA say some ridiculous things as well, like. Sure. Um, and I think that people seem to conflate the notion that, oh, these players are, like, super cosmopolitan, they, you know, they're, 
their they have Rolex deals and right, they, and they uh, travel go... around the world on private jets and they well not that are... but that they're cultured yeah. yeah because they travel everywhere and it, you know oh well they know you know, because in a lot of ways like in my life I know like if I see another person who like travels a lot or something like that I'm always like oh they must be really cultured they've seen a lot of things but within the tennis community that's just their office like they still just are in a very small bubble for for like you know 15 20 years of their lives like just going from country to country they're not actually exposed to ideas like do people think that they're you know they have most of them haven't gone to college most a lot of them never like didn't finish high school and do people think that they're sitting on planes like reading sartre like or or like camus like thinking about things i mean other than Tipsarovich reading his tattoo, I don't really think that like they're sitting there thinking about the problems of the world and um, trying to do their part to solve them. So I don't really know why. Yeah, we we people are, are prone to to think that they yeah. should be any different. And I've and I've met Polanski before. I'd actually talked to him for this story on the Let Rule I did in Australia. <laughs> so he's always been a perfectly you know friendly guy with me. It's just sometimes you know people. Like I said, these are human beings and not superhuman people who necessarily should be worshipped blindly right. all the time. That's all we're saying. Yeah. And just be, and and Polanski might have the somewhat less of a filter or less at stake when he you know speaks to Mike. He knows that he's not you know uh, so somebody. He's going to lose a lot of endorsements over because he probably doesn't have that many. Honestly, I mean you know, yeah, because 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 he doesn't think anybody cares what he says. Right. Which is why. And really, maybe he should be right about that. So now we're going to wrap up with our little rant corner of the show. No number this week. We're just going to head straight into this because uh, we had a lot to catch up on with tournaments and stuff. And mine is actually about something that happened to me after the tournament. Um, I got the chance to finally go to the Melbourne Zoo where I immediately looked on the map and went straight to the uh, platypusery. That's what they call it. <laughs> It's a um, it's a room. It's this it's this sort of dark nocturnal exhibit where you walk through a curtain and this darkened room, and there's a tank of water there where there is a platypus inside, and it was all very exciting. I've always been a big fan of platypi, and they uh, they're the it was only heartbroken you know, to not get to see one last year. It was rough. It was rough. It was my own fault, but it was rough. And they actually didn't have them for some reason in the Melbourne Zoo like last year. They were rotating somewhere else or something. I don't know what was going on. So I went in and then, you know, you know, took some photos, was very excited about it. So I'm swimming around. They're very fast. You wouldn't think they're as fast swimmers as they are. And they also spend more under time underwater than you might expect a uh, amphibian mammal to do. So I don't know. It was all very exciting. Anyway, my rant segment of this is that for people like me who had, you know, made this pilgrimage to see this platypus in Australia, where it's really the only place you can do it, you think there would be more devotional items available, but I went. I went to the the gift shop afterwards at the Melbourne Zoo, hoping to get some platypus swag, and there was like nothing there for platypi. There was one stuffed platypus, you know, stuffed animal thing, but it was like white and completely not anatomically correct, and just made no sense. And that was it. And they had all these things for like elephants and giraffes and other animals at the zoo, but those aren't Australian animals. No one flies to Australia to see an elephant. That's just not what you would do. So I thought they really misunderstood their market and what their purpose was. So just a uh, eye roll at you, Melbourne Zoo, merchandise stalkers. Get some more platypus stuff in there because there's a demand. Wow. So that's, that's my piece. Wow. It's very uh very important message. 
good stuff. Courtney, how about how about you? What, what what do you want to talk about this week to end our show? Well, I have a tennis one and I have a non-tennis one, but I'm going to okay. go with a non-tennis one. Can you can do both. We got no, time. no, no. I can save my tennis one for another episode because it's okay. going to annoy me later. It's, it's, okay. it's, it's just, it just annoys me all across the board. I'm going to okay. go with my non-tennis one because okay. since the Australian Open ended, I've done what I think most people um, have been doing, which is kind of trying to get your life in order after two weeks of you know, um, staying up through the night, uh, for me anyways, um, and sleeping all through the day. Like it was to the point where I actually had to do like online grocery delivery like to my house because I couldn't, I was waking up at like three o'clock in the afternoon and going to sleep at like nine and nine or 10 in the morning. So I was not leaving the house for two weeks. So, and I was running out of food. So uh, it was pretty <laughs> That's dedication. Cool. That's dedication. I know. So we did that, which was a pretty good service. But anyways, um, so I have been catching up on all this television that I've missed, which has been awesome um, because mm-hmm. for the most part, everything's been really good. But so I was just watched the show that I was really looking forward to called The Following on oh, Fox. Is that the Kevin Bacon show? Yeah, with the Kevin Bacon, with the bacon. Um, Kevin Bacon and Natalie Zay, who I love. When she, I loved her when she was on um, Dirty Sexy Money. She was like the funniest character, but she's much more serious here. But anyways, so in the second, it's a it's a good show. Um, I'll stick to it. It's very graphic. It's easily the most graphically violent television show on network television. Hmm. So, and it's intense. Um, but in the second season, in the second episode, there's one scene that captured like my biggest phobia. And so to see it, depicted on screen has like kind of like ruined me for a couple of days Uh-oh. which is like um so i i don't like mirrors i know that's a really weird thing to say but i just don't like them i don't really have them around my house like i'm never really concerned about what i look like i guess when i leave the house and stuff so i just don't really have a lot of mirrors and part of the reason why is when i was a little kid i i had this like nightmare once where i was like brushing my teeth and like Spider-Man was like jumped out from behind me and I saw it through the mirror. And ever since then, like I've been really kind of freaked out about looking into mirrors of seeing something like happening behind you, uh-huh. whatever. So anyways, um, but yeah, so there's a scene where he's like looking into a mirror and like there's a bunch of like Edgar Allan Poe masks behind him. There's a reason for it, but they're like these rubber masks and okay. all of a sudden one of them like leaps out from the wall because there's a guy in it and like comes at him with like a knife and it scared the living shit out of me. <laughs> and there's another one too where like she's brushing her teeth and like this cop who has been killed and replaced by another cop like comes in and like closes the door and she sees this all happening like behind her and like realizes what's happening. I cannot. So the following stop with the freaking mirrors. Like you're using it too much. It's a really like played out like horror movie trope like move on stop doing it for my own sanity's sake don't appreciate it i'll still watch your show but if it keeps happening i'm gonna stop good good advisor yes i, I will say everybody that... watch the americans because that show freaking kicks ass watch it i've heard i actually know someone who works on that show so that's everybody you, who's like in dc like no, has been telling me they know somebody who works on it or like something but pretty it's, much the pilot was so good. It's on it's streaming on Hulu right now. But speaking of know. TV shows um, and mirrors, actually, my favorite moment in the Thirty Rock finale was actually when they comp- when they took away Jenna Maroney's mirror, yes. and she started crying and recounting her all her past memories with her mirror. <laughs> it was it was I was very sad. To see, I think we're not, I know we're both third, big Thirty Rock fans. That would um, have been another rant. Was why did you have to end? But we think we both think it ended at the right time. Yes, we both think it ended at the right time. 
Yeah. But it's like weird. Like I was reading this other article and it was one thing that I just didn't really think about was like, we're going to have to go through like probably like a couple of years until like we have Tina, it may be if it ever happens again, but like um, having Tina Fey like on screen on a weekly basis. Yeah, we got spoiled. We got spoiled through SNL and then through 30 Rock. It's been like a 10 year run of like, oh yeah, Tina. Yeah, no, it's it's been it's been uh, this is you know like sort of a golden age of television and uh, people I know people say that and roll their eyes, but I think it is true. It is. It I'm, I'm like is. for American, it might not be for American tennis, but for ten for scripted <laughs> television, it absolutely is. And yeah, and it's just been uh, all these big stars have come to TV and been more and more accessible more often. It's not like somebody makes two movies a year now. It's like they make you know twenty episodes a year, and it's pretty good. Yep. So. TV is where Enjoy it while it lasts, folks. Enjoy it while it lasts. Right. And we have, like, reality TV to thank for it. That weird reality TV boon that happened, like, about five, ten years ago, where, like, everything was reality. Yeah. All, all of, like, the people who were actual script writers who were good were, like, out of work. And they were like, screw this. I'm going to write something that's really good. Yeah. Get it on they TV. All, it became a war good. over quality. Mm-hmm. Which is awesome for Seriously, people. there's so much good TV now. Like, it's exhausting to keep up with it all. You can't. You have to really pick and choose, and it's sad. Yeah. Agreed. So, we'll end with that. Yeah. I think we're not, I don't know, I think it's, is it a golden age for tennis podcasts, Courtney? You know what? I'd have to say it is, only because there has never been a golden age of pod- tennis podcasts, so might as well be this one. It's never been better. Yeah, we can't compare we'll it. Yeah. So, with that thought, we'll, we'll sign off on this one, our own golden entry into this pantheon. We'll talk to you again next week, for sure. And get more back on a regular track now. They're on the same continent and the same time zones, the same sleep schedules vaguely. So thanks for listening, folks. Have a good one and see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>